Welcome to the latest Berlin podcast. My name is Ray Perman, and I'm a Berlin author. My latest book, The Rise and Fall of the City of Money, is a financial history of Edinburgh. But today, I'm going to be joined by a fellow Berlin author, Bob Wiley, to celebrate the launch of his latest book, Bandit Capitalism, Carillion and the Corruption of the British State. So welcome, Bob. Hi, Ray. Many people will remember Carillion, which went bust a few years ago, but they won't know the full details of the story. Can you tell us briefly what happened and importantly, why you were attracted to write about it? Well, well, I think if you want to get the Carillion story in some sort of perspective, Ray, it relates to the way in which the British economy was privatised. That started, I suppose, with the Thatcher Revolution, the privatisation of British gas, British steel, and so on. And that process of privatising elements of the economy and the delivery of services in the economy in particular has finished up with £300 billion worth of services or government contracts being delivered annually by the private sector. So although the state used to do education, it did to, used to do hospitals, NHS exclusively, now we've got names like Serco, Interserve, Capita, and of course, Carillion. You could perhaps just use the example of hospital building. It used to be the case in the mid-90s, I would say, up till that time, that NHS built hospitals and, and ran them. By the time we get to, you know, 20 years later, 2015 or something, we've got the position where the private sector is building the hospitals and then has permanent forever contracts to run them. So that's how Carillion emerged. It was a demerger of the construction company, Tarmac. So it was a construction company. Carillion, well, for example, built Terminal 5, the Tate Gallery, Anfield Stadium, or the redevelopment of Liverpool Stadium. It built the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in, in Glasgow. But then it, in the last 15, 20 years of its existence, the turn was made to develop into services and private contracts for the government. So by the time Carillion finishes, it's doing all sorts of things, running housing services for the army, contracts for building and running hospitals, it's repairing schools, it's cleaning schools, it's delivering school meals. But that massive expansion to 5.2 billion turnover finishes as a giant Ponzi scheme. Carillion is running to keep still. It's got so many, the mountain of its debt, it means it needs to take on and take on and take on and take on new contracts just to keep the cash flow going. The loan burden for Carillion was around 200 million in uh, 2009. And then by the time it went bust, the actual loans alone were 1.3 billion. So like all Ponzi schemes, it grew and grew and grew and grew, and then eventually it crashed. So the story of Carillion is this brave new world of the entry into services and everything else, and it ends up in blunder and plunder. Very good. So Carillion is really your window into a much wider problem, and one that we'll get into a bit later and probably still with us. But I want to just ask you this. You start the book not with talking about Carillion at all, <laughs> but with talking about the Russian oligarchs. 
now, what is the relevance of that and how does it relate to Carillion and to the other things that you're saying? Well, I think I, I decided to use the Russian oligarchs because the development of the Russian oligarchs was based on a billion or a trillion dollar scam of looting the Russian state. But by the mid-1990s, what started as perestroika had become katastroika, and something had to be done about reforming the Russian economy. The original privatization scheme didn't work. So they moved into a position of what is called the sale of the century, probably, of flogging off all the main mineral assets, oil and gas, gold, all the big mining, all of Siberia was sold off. And as a result of that, that was done at rock bottom prices. So the oil fields were getting purchased for $170 million and were worth billions inside, well, two, three, four, five years. So those who were involved in that transfer became unimaginably rich, unaccountable, and almost untouchable. And they became known as the Russian oligarchs. Well, they've got British cousins. There is a set of British oligarchs who, like their Russian counterparts, have, in effect, become unimaginably rich as a result of looting the British state. And that takes us to the Carillionaires, the Carillion oligarchs, on top of what was once Britain's biggest industrial and services company. It had a turnover of five billion. But once the plunder was done, and once the blundering was done of how it was run, it finished up with 29 million in the bank and total debts touching 7 billion. So the British oligarchs got rich like the Russians, but in Karelian sense, downfall awaited. You are pretty fearless in the book in naming names of the people in Karelian who you accuse of doing this, the blunder and the plunder. How is it? How did they take money out of the company? Because it was a public company. It was quoted on the stock market. It was well scrutinized. And, uh, its accounts were published. The government was watching it very carefully because it was doing a lot of government work at this time. How did these individuals who were running the company manage to take so much money out? What, what sort of sums of money are we talking about? I, I suppose in a way, to try and shorthand, you could talk about Richard Adam, who was the financial secretary for Carillion for 10 years. And he, inside the company, he was known as the Paul Daniels of profit, the magician of profit, able to turn what looked like a loss, apparently, into figures which amounted to millions and millions in profit. In the book, I think I say, Adam took Carillion and the accounting to a faraway financial galaxy. So in his last year, he's paid in salary and bonuses 1.1 million. He and was he, paid himself 1.1 million. In that last year. Yeah. For, for his 10 years, I think his takings top 10 million, as a matter of fact. And the longest serving director in Carillion, John McDonough, in his nine-year stint, his earnings topped 11 million. And the last chief executive, 
thousand, his earnings topped for five years seven million. So they could take the money out because they were financing the running of the company with huge borrowings, but ultimately they could pay themselves what they wanted to pay because they could. So after he leaves in December 2016, the, the accounts for that year signed off by Adam are published in March. On the 1st of March, he takes his first cash in of long-term share options. That, that nets him more than £500,000. The next time he can cash the last bit of his share options is May. That gets him another 234000 So he cashes in the options for three quarters of a million pounds almost within two or three months of him leaving Carillion. Then, after the May where he's done his last cashing, it's discovered in the books that there's an £845 million hole. Oops. £845 million. That becomes a hole in their accounts of a billion by the end of the year. Our man Adam says he never saw that coming. Everything was hunky-dory when he left. Nobody could have predicted what happened. And so sad, too bad, never mind. But he took the money and he still got it. And if you believe that Richard Adams left and didn't know what was coming, you would probably believe that the Russian agents went to Salisbury to look at the cathedral. If the government didn't see it coming, why did the auditors, who are meant to scrutinise the company's accounts on behalf of the shareholders, why didn't the auditors flag this up? Because I think you say that the, the public accounts, which were published for Carillion in the year before it went bust, showed a clean bill of health. Well, when I was writing the book, and you'll have the same experience, Ray, you, you begin to go down particular alleyways of investigation. And something which looks like a byway, a lane between two buildings, finishes up looking like a motorway in terms of the jaw-dropping facts and figures that you get to. And, you know, I'm not alone in this, and, and Bandit Capitalins is not alone in this, but the big four accounting firms in Britain, KPMG, Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse, and Ernst & Young, or EY as it's known, none of them emerged with a clean bill of health in the Trillian affair. And in fact, I think Rachel Reeves said that the performance in relation to auditing Carillion's books meant that they were complicit in the scandal, Rachel Reeves, the, the chair of the parliamentary committee. So KPMG were Carillion's auditors for 19 years. And they were paid £29 million for the trouble. And in those 19 years, they never issued a single, a single audit with a question mark. There was never, as they say in the game, a single qualified opinion. So the auditors were of the same view as Richard Adams. Everything was hunky-dory. There wasn't, you know, I think the signing off used, I've got a quote here, uh, the financial statements give a true and fair view of the state of the company's affairs as at 31 December 2016. 
by the 31st of December 2017, there was £1.1 billion missing. Yeah. One of the big groups who suffered from this, obviously the government suffered because contracts were not completed and so on, but were the pensioners of Karelian, the people who'd paid in their pension contributions over years and years and years. And that pension fund was left with a massive deficit while Karelian was lining the pockets of not only its executives, but also paying out dividends to its shareholders. Well, I don't actually have the figures to hand, but one of the salient facts is that none of the directors of Carillion were in the Carillion Pension Fund. Yes. They all had private pensions. The private pensions payments to uh, Housen and Adam, the chief executive and the chief of finance, in the last couple of years amounted to £1.8 million. Mm. All the time, the deficit within the pension fund for the workers was building and building and building. It finished at one point before the crash of going, the deficit, that is to say, the, the shortfall in what the company should have paid into the company pension fund for its workforce was 990 million. But that, in terms of restitution of all of that, became 2.4 billion in the actual amount that the taxpayer had to pay to make restitution. But even that means that the average Carillion worker has lost 10% of their pension. So the pensions catastrophe is another element where it demonstrates, like the auditors somehow failing to find a billion missing, turning the other cheek or turning the other way, the regulators did the same. They made all sorts of noises about what has to be done and under pension law, company act, and so on and so forth. You're way out of line. They were one of the biggest deficits in pensions in the entire British business establishment. But the pension regulator never used the powers of sanction enforcing the directors to pay the pensions at any point whatsoever. Now, with the collapse of Carillion, there were a number of investigations, parliamentary committees and so on, to, quote, learn the lessons of the failure of Carillion. Have we learned those lessons, Bob? Well, what I would say, Ray, is Pride of Place has to go to the Joint Committee of the Work and Pensions and Business Committee, chaired by Rachel Reeves. They reported on Carillion in four months. Now we're in the position where, coming up for the third anniversary of Carillion going bust in January 2021, not one of the major regulators has published a sentence of investigation about what happened at Carillion. You know, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Competition Authority, the Financial Research Council, all these regulatory bodies, and two and a half years later, have not published any findings, any criticism of what went on. And that in itself is a scandal piled on the Carillion scandal. You know, the book was sponsored by the union, the GMB. And Gary Smith is the Scotland secretary of GMB. 
And in one of the discussions, you know, he talked about Karelian representing at the hands of the directors a litany of treachery. But he raised the issue that if lessons are to be learned, to go, come back to what you raised there, if lessons have to be learned, there needs to be actually a statutory public inquiry into Karelian. People have to come to an inquiry and take under oath and speak to the great questions that remain. Right now, the Karelian oligarchs, all of them, have refused to answer a single question put to them by me. They are unaccountable, they are unimaginably rich, and it looks as if, up until now, they are untouchable. We need to do better than that, Ray. The book is a collection of indictments, but the public realm has to hold these people to account. The subtitle to the book is The Corruption of the British State. So you believe that the sort of things that happened in Carillion are still happening today in other sectors? Well, the original discussion with the publishers, they were interested in a story of Carillion. But Hugh Andrew, who is the managing director of Berlin, said that it could only really exist if it was seen as, to use his quote, an exemplar. If, if Carillion was used as a symbol or a, an epitome of the state that we're in. So the book talks about in detail the decisions that were made, the thunder, the blunder, and the plunder in Carillion. But it also traces Carillion's existence and what happened back to financialization, to the power of money in the economy, back to the crash, back to austerity back to the bankers, in fact. So there's an entire system that becomes under question mark. And, and I suppose, broadly speaking, you're talking about what is happening right now. I, I've done a research project on British gas, which is about to sack 5,000 workers. And in the last five years, the four top people at the top of British gas took 31 million out of the company. The book goes into the details of Persimmon Homes, where on the basis of a taxpayer-funded project, the right to buy, three or four directors there took 190 million in profit out of the company. Or our own Royal Mail, the new guy who arrived real back, gets 6.6 million in a golden hello, and he was made redundant in May this year, and even when he was made redundant, he got another three quarters of a million. Thanks very much. The Financial Times ran a series saying that the state that we're in needs an entire new approach, the recreation of a social contract where everybody has a, a stake in society. Right now, all of Britain's business is governed by this maximization of shareholders' value. That is maximization of profit, maximization of share prices. And the chief executive's money, earnings, is based on how well the shares do, how well the profit does. And that makes for inequality, it makes for huge earnings for them that they don't deserve. And it makes for a, a long time revolution needed in the way capitalism is run in Britain. Right capitalism is not working.
and we need to invest in the future in a much, much better way. This isn't a moral question, although it's bad that one in four children in Britain are brought up in poverty. It's about how the British economy is run and why it could be run much, much better. But it would take brave government action to change. Thank you, Bob. That is a very neat end to our podcast. Uh, I just want to say a couple of things that bandit capitalism, Carillion and the Corruption of British State, a, a ripping good read, but also a book <laughs> with a lot to tell us about the state of Britain. It's available now in bookshops or you can buy it online at Berlin, www.berlin.co.uk. Bob and I will be back again in a future podcast talking about the bankers that uh, Bob mentioned and maybe some of the similar sort of uh, happenings in that field when Bob interviews me about my book, The Rise and Fall of the City of Money. But for now, goodbye. <laughs>